Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Our aspirations wrapped up in books. Hello and welcome to Bookmark. This is the show that talks about books and writing with a local slant and we have a fantasy science fiction theme to this week's programme. Our featured guest is Andrew Stickland, talking about the first in his Mars Alone trilogy, The Arcadian Incident. We'll hear from Nicola Rend, talking about her novel Vamps, Fresh Blood, and Ellen Hunter will be chatting about his novel, The Feather and the Lamp. Uh, we'll give you a proper introduction in a moment, Andrew, but first of all, welcome to Bookmark. Thank you for having me on the show well science fiction fantasy is would you agree this novel is science fiction that's a really big question in a sense yes is the short answer it's science fiction but actually one of the things that i've had to look into is the whole question of different genres within science fiction and actually i think it was on uh, wikipedia that i was looking the other day and if you look at science fiction by genre, there are 39 subcategories. So yes, it's science fiction. Beyond that, you could say that it's future fiction. It's near future fiction. Uh, it's hard science fiction. Sometimes you could say it's soft science fiction. There, there are so many different little niches. Uh, it's quite hard to say which one it fits into. I suppose what you're emphasising is there's room for manoeuvre in this genre? There is, and I think that the short answer is that science fiction covers a huge, huge big sway of the market, and possibly because it's so big, people are looking for you know, that little niche that they like best. There's a genre about specifically about robots, there's one about aliens. You know, you can you can you can find every little thing that you want out there. And and why science fiction for you? I love science fiction. I read a lot of it. I watch an awful lot of science fiction on TV and in the cinema. When I was thinking about what to write about, it just seemed the obvious area to go to. Having said that, I wrote this specifically after a request from my oldest son to, to write him a book. And I asked him, I said, what? what would I write about if I was going to write you a book? And he, as far as I remember, it was a while ago now, but he shrugged and said something like, oh, I don't know, maybe spaceships, maybe pirates. <laughs> so I thought, OK, I'll write a, a a novel about pirates in space. But you've loved science fiction, you say. You say it was John Wyndham. I think a lot of people get into science fiction through him. Yeah, John Wyndham's interesting. I, I think my love of science fiction started when I was about 13, 14, I remember I used to go into town after school and there was where where I went to school in Stamford. Uh, there was a fantastic shop. It was a stationer's downstairs and a bookshop upstairs. And I just used to spend hours literally just staring at all the books. Uh, I would pick one up and just read the back cover. I would look at the, the front covers and, and just love all the pictures. And it was always the sci-fi ones that, that, that had the best covers. So I found myself more and more just going to that little section and it wasn't actually John Wyndham at that point it was it was people like Isaac Asimov 
the uh, the big names, uh, Arthur C. Clarke. But there was something about John Wyndham. I I found the Day of the Triffids, and at the time the the John Wyndham series had some fantastic painted covers, and I, and I loved the pictures. And there was just something about the the plot. I I loved the way that. This wasn't about space. This wasn't about spaceships and planets and aliens. This was about the world that we were living in, all the 30, 40 years in the past. But it was what would happen if the world we live in suddenly faced a crisis. Now, possibly that crisis is from beyond the Earth, uh, but maybe not. Maybe it's mutated plants or, or maybe it's a, a threat from the, the bottom of the oceans or something. And when I started reading them, it just seemed it was an amazing thing that he could do to just take normal people in, in, in a normal life and turn that whole thing upside down and, and try and look at what life would be like with a global catastrophe. And, and of course, in, in a sense, I mean, in a, in a very minor way, this is what, what we saw with COVID. The, the world we live in was suddenly turned upside down. And it wasn't too bad for us. You know, we weren't facing man-eating plants or, or whatever. But it, it's that that whole question of how life changes. Something about it clicked. Well, we'll be talking to you about uh, your novel and how that all ended up in there, really. But let's uh, start with your first choice of music. Is music important to you? Not when I write. I, I do listen to music sometimes when I'm writing. It has to be instrumental. I can't listen to anything with lyrics while I'm trying to write, the same as when I read. I, I don't like trying to listen to the words of a song while I'm looking at or thinking about other words. But instrumental music, uh, yes, I play a, a lot of it all the time when I'm out and about, when I'm just sitting around the house. I, I just find it very comforting to go back to stuff that I've, I've, I I know very well. It, it, I'm not great at new music, but, but if, it, if it's something that I, I've been listening to for years... It's just very comforting having that in the background. And this one, which is Gassenhauer by Karl Orff, why this one? It's hard to say. It's one of my favourite pieces in the sense that I have so many pieces that I would describe as my favourite. This is one that, when I first heard it, it's a stunning piece. It's very simple. It starts off slow and quiet and builds. It's just a beautiful piece of music and it's one that I find, if I can't think of what to listen to at that moment... It's always near the top of the list of, of my go-to pieces. And that was Gassenhauer by Karl Orff, the first choice of music from our featured guest on Bookmark today, Andrew Stickland. Andrew is a prize-winning poet and short story writer whose work has been published by the British Fantasy Society, Games Workshop and The Economist. The Arcadian Incident, book one in the Mars Alone trilogy, came out earlier this month. The Cambridge writer Melissa Fu, who we interviewed last year on Bookmark, described it as part space adventure, part coming-of-age story, with quicksilver prose and a pacey plot. The story keeps you guessing till the very last page. What a review. So, Andrew, as I say, just out. So uh, most people won't have read it, I'm guessing. So what's it about for those who haven't? Well, as you said earlier, it's science fiction. It's set about 300 years in the future. But it's, it's our future. 
I haven't taken us out of the solar system. I haven't introduced aliens or faster than light travel, anything like that. This is us in a slightly different reality where we've colonised the moon and we've colonised Mars. There are a few other settlements here and there within the solar system. But it it's all very much the kind of future that is, is very definitely a possibility in terms of what we might achieve. I don't think we would achieve it within 300 years. So in that sense, it's made up in, in, in the sense that in order to actually get to where we are in the novel may take us a thousand years rather than the 300. But what it is, in effect, it's a, an adventure story. It's about two teenagers, the main characters, Leo Fisher and Skater Monroe. They meet on a shuttle going up from Earth to the moon. For Leo, it's the first time that he's been off planet. He's nervous, but he's 15 years old. He he doesn't want to, to seem like he's scared or, or that he's a, a novice in some way. So he's he's putting a brave face on, on the fact that he's going up to the moon for the first time. Skater is a 15-year-old girl. This is, I think, her 10th her trip up. She goes off planet quite a lot because her dad works as a shuttle pilot, mostly in and around the moon. But she has in the past gone with him to Mars. She had a, a trip to Mars. So she's quite experienced. She's a, a much more adventurous and, and daring character than Leo. And they meet and they become friends on this shuttle journey. And that's, you know, as far as Leo is concerned, he thinks maybe, you know, it was nice to meet her, but that's that. He's going up to spend time with his mother, who's a scientist, and is working on the moon. When he gets there, he discovers that she's gone missing. Now, we know because, as as readers, we know because it tells us in the prologue, she's been kidnapped. And it takes Leo a couple more chapters before he realises this. And this is his big adventure. This is what the book is about. It's about Leo trying to find his mother. And this is written, it's a YA novel, so what age range is this aimed at? Well, YA, it's an interesting category. Technically, it's late teen. But the thing is, I think as a writer, you don't want to limit your readership at all. So the temptation is to say, yes, it's a young adult novel, but grown-ups can read it, definitely. And actually, younger kids can as well, because I think a lot of younger readers will will very quickly move on to young adult from, I don't know, whatever age, the, the 8 to 12 range. I've had people I know as young as 10, I think. 10 was the youngest reader who has given me feedback, and, and he absolutely loved it. There was nothing in there that's, that's inappropriate for a 10-year-old. Yeah, at the other end, I, I think my dad is probably my oldest reader. <laughs> He's now in his 80s and he loved it as well. So, so. T- 10 to 80s, 10 to 8, never mind why. When you're, when you're writing, because it is pitched as a, a YA novel, what are the kind of issues that you need to think about when you're writing for that uh, age group in terms of, well, content, I suppose, violence and sex mainly? Yeah, in terms of content, definitely you you have to be careful. The the sex is... is pretty much a no-no unless you're writing something that's designed to be talking about relationships whether it's not very interesting whether it's it's just something that you should steer clear of because you will get younger readers 
reading young adult novels. So you have to be careful about that. The violence, in a sense, is, is harder because we're subjected to violence all the time. We, we see it on TV, in film, and there are definitely different sorts of violence. You can have cartoon violence, you can have the kind of superhero type violence where there's a lot of fighting and punching and hitting and possibly even shooting of things but you don't really deal with the consequences of of this you you never see people who are actually injured or 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 die so yes there's there's a certain amount of violence in this but it's the kind of violence that would just be exciting you know it's people shooting and missing a little bit of fighting uh, some explosions here and there but as i say Nothing that would upset or be inappropriate for for kids ten ten years up. It's a kind of Star Wars type of violence, isn't it? When I read it, that as you say, there's shooting, but there's very little aftermath. There is now. Having said that, there there are a couple of characters who will die, or people in in the story who die. I didn't want to shy away from this. It matters to to the plot, and especially as, as you mentioned, it's the first in a trilogy. They do become a little bit darker as we go along, and the two teenagers, Leo and Skater, they do have to to deal with the consequences of their actions. They do have to come face to face with death, but then, in in a sense, we all do, and, and I think this is one of the things that's maybe hard about writing for young adults is that we shouldn't underestimate them. They are quite grown up. Even a 10-year-old will do a lot of thinking about life and death, and especially when you get to to young adults. I think if you try and write something that in some way misses out the important things in life, it won't work. You'll end up writing something that's a bit contrived or a bit comic or just that isn't as effective as it could could be, I think. And as you say, it's based on, on Mars and the Moon. How much research did you do? How much science is there in there about whether one, that would be possible or not and what would happen if you were living on the Moon, how, how it would work? Yeah, one of the things I tried to do was stick to the rules of physics. The obvious things that a lot of science fiction has are faster-than-the-light travel so that you can go out of the solar system and you can go and visit other planets. I didn't want anything like that. I I wanted to limit the story to the solar system because that's as far as we're going to travel. Certainly as humans, possibly we might send unmanned craft beyond there, but in terms of the story, I wanted it to to remain within the solar system. I wanted there to be no gravity on on my spaceships unless it's created by having a, a, a spinning loop, which is possible, but... The idea that you have a switch on your spaceship that you can just turn gravity on and off. I, I didn't want to go there. And and the reason that, that we have that is because so much of science fiction that we're used to is visual from TV and film. And it's really expensive to and, and, and also quite difficult for your cast if, if you have no gravity. So there's this assumption that once you're on the spaceship in some way you can just walk around as normal. I didn't want that because it's a book, it's not a film, it's not a TV show. Beyond that, the the science is, is quite limited in the sense that this is the world we live in, it's just 300 years in the future. 
it's quite hard to to guess what this will be like if i think about some of the science fiction even from the sort of the 80s and 90s no one really thought about things like mobile phones back then they were just starting to to be used but if you go back further if you look at things like asimov uh, he he still has people using telephones so you'll always get it wrong there there will be things you don't realize are going to change or are going to come in and and you just have to make the best of it you can look ahead and think well how will people communicate how will people travel but what i specifically wanted really is is to make it as close to the world we live in now as possible but just have that world spread across more than one planet as you say it's spread across more than one planet we've got colonies on the moon and mars and it seems to me you are making a point within it even though it's for young adults about colonization and certainly about surveillance and there's a little bit of politics in there as well because there's somebody running to be president of Mars. So you can use this form to make statements about these bigger issues, these current issues. Yeah, and and I think that, in a sense, is, is where the, the best writing comes from, is you take a story that's relevant at the moment and you just set it within a world that you've created. It doesn't have to be a science fiction world. In effect, this story, as I described it as an adventure story, it could really be set in the contemporary world. Instead of a, a spaceship that they travel on at one point, it could just be a cruise ship. Instead of going between planets, they could go between different countries. It, it could be historical. It, it could be set in the 1800s. The core of the story, uh, and I think what makes an exciting story generally, is the people, the characters and the situation. And where you set that story is mostly just your preference. I found that it was more comfortable writing in the near future rather than making it a historical novel. Although I, I love reading historical fiction, I found it easier to to go in the opposite direction and go into the future. But it's you know, it's it's a story that could happen now. It could could happen at any time really. And you, as I say, you are making these points as well about colonisation and surveillance and politics. The politician who's certainly at the heart of book one or who's one of the main influences, if you like, is not entirely honest, I think we can say. Yeah, I think that these characters exist. The point is, as you say, without giving too much of the story away, the main villain is an incredibly rich, incredibly successful businessman who runs a company called Mars Mine, which, as the name implies, is just mining Mars. And he's making so much money doing this that he's kind of like the, the richest and most powerful man in, in the solar system. And this this is not enough for him because he's a megalomaniac. He wants to go further. He he wants to, to be the ruler of the, the entire human race, the entire solar system. And sadly, I think there are people like this and there always have been people like this and like I say, I could have set it in the 1800s and found perfectly good historical examples of characters like this. I could have set it in the present day. And again, there are characters who are very similar to this that we know of. It's just a little bit nicer, I think, if if I go into the future, because I could make him even worse than <laughs> than some of the current examples. Well, let's leave space travel 
for a while. Uh, thank you, Andrew. We'll come back to you in just a moment. But let's uh, go and look at vampires now. Nicole Loren's debut novel, Vamps, Fresh Blood, came out last year. The Observer described it as slick and Publishers Weekly called it a sexy, dark, academia-tinged debut. I met Nicole when she came to Waterstones in Cambridge and started by asking her what the novel is about. So it's about a boy who turns 18 and discovers he's a half-vampire, known as a dampier, and he's suddenly sent to this top gun for vampires. It's like the an exclusive, whatever you want to call it, an elite school for vampires. And it's literally, he's literally thrown in at the deep end, he's totally over his head, and he has to sort of survive amongst these very confident, very arrogant, often quite scary vampires. And it's a story of him sort of finding his feet, really. Yeah, and learning learning how to be a vampire, basically. All right, so this is sort of like, I'm sure it's been said, like a Harry Potter for vampires. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. It's like it's Top Gun for vampires, <laughs> Harry Potter for vampires, yeah. exactly. So, because yeah. I was thinking, how can you put a fresh twist on vampires? We've seen almost every single version of it, but this yes. is actually, are, you me- are we meant to like the vampires? Rather than being sort of hidden and sort of at the sort of like edges of society, they're now trying to sort of almost take part in society and almost sort of slightly run it in a secret way. So they've realised they can't go around sort of like biting everybody into this. So they're they're trying to sort of control their desires. That's what some of the school's about. So although we're not meant to like them, I think these vampires are very sort of elitist and very arrogant and very confident. I think that's the thing that you'd find more unattractive at the moment, more than their... It's a bloodlust, for example. <laughs> and what is it about vampires? We keep coming back to them in various forms, in films and theatre and novels. What is it? I keep asking myself. I keep thinking, why am I drawn to vampires? And I think it's it's something about the the slight that well the immortality the fear of them, the power of them, the otherworldliness of them. They're sort of like monsters, but they're human. I'm not saying that we're all monsters, but we all all have contradictions in ourselves. And maybe you can sort of see a little bit of a metaphor for that in in a vampire. And I particularly like vampires that are very conflicted about their nature. These vampires, not so much. They're sort of quite confident about who they are. But Dylan, as a half-vampire and having been a human, is very conflicted about suddenly having to obviously drink blood and do those (laughs) vampire things. (laughs) And in the past, vampire has been used as a kind of metaphor, if you like, for sexuality, for awakening, for puberty. Yes. Is is that something that you've... uh, Yes. So for this is very much a coming of age for Dylan, but except it's on sort of like he sort of goes through those adolescent rites of passage times a hundred, you know. (laughs) (laughs) It's suddenly like, it's suddenly very intense. It all happens very quickly and he suddenly he's suddenly yeah he's suddenly introduced to sex that sort of erotic slightly erotic sort of uh, association with blood drinking the whole thing yeah he suddenly it all comes at once (laughs) and and you mentioned um immortality there because there's certain things we know about vampires have you studied that have you studied the kind of if it's not a contradiction in terms of the vampire bible what vampires can um, and can't do so i had already read quite a bit about vampires before i was given this idea to write and then i really didn't want to read anything about them at all because i just thought i've just got to do my own thing for a bit then i went back and maybe at some points during the book started reading more about them yes and really enjoyed the research about them and went back to some books i'd read you know when i was young 
Anne Rice's interview of the vampire is fantastic. And I also, I mean, I love um, Charlene Harris's, well, I know it became the True Blood series, but it was the uh, Southern Vampires. So I went back and researched all of that and it was, yeah. <laughs> Did you find out any facts about vampires that we, we don't know? We all know about the garlic and the cross and the um, mirrors. Well, I, um, I was trying to sort of make it sort of work logically as well. So I actually did quite a bit of research into vampire bats. And I'm, I'm just wondering whether Bram Stoker originally had done something similar because there's very, very interesting descriptions about how the bats, they just do these tiny little slices into the skin and how they lap the blood. Sorry, that sounds disgusting. <laughs> I suppose you've been living and breathing this, yeah. haven't you? And the way they can, you know, the way they navigate the dark and the way they find their prey, it's all very, not very, I mean, it's all quite scary, to be honest. So I actually found that quite fascinating and then tried to sort of bring those across in to some of the vampire descriptions. And this is the first in a trilogy. Yes. Was it always going to be a trilogy? Yes, yes. And do you know how it's panning out? Roughly, roughly. I mean, it's going to get darker because at the moment Dylan's mainly been amongst other vampires and he's been sort of trying to sort of deal with himself as a vampire, which is shocking in itself and what it will mean to his relationship with his father now, he was human. So in the... It's going to get darker in the next book, so I think there'll be more human interaction. So I do know where it's going, and there'll be more action outside of the academy or the school. And this is for young adults, so what age range is that? Um, so it's for young adults, I'd say anything from 14 to adults, you know, right up to whatever age. <laughs> yeah, so they can handle that quite dark stuff. Yes, I mean, I don't, at the moment, I don't think this is too dark. I mean, I know drinking blood isn't you know it's it's, it's what vampires do yeah, it's <laughs> what vampires do so it's not that nice i suppose but yeah i mean it's not as dark and, the, and they don't get as injured as some of the uh characters have perhaps for like bella was forever in twilight was forever in hospital it seemed and even suki likewise in true blood was often in hospital so i tried to avoid that hopefully so it's hopefully scary but not too violent <laughs> And have you set your own rules within it? Because, I mean, you've got, you've got your vampire rules. And then I guess in this world, there are particular rules as well. It's fantasy. Yeah. So you could just... I, I, was, getting a bit, I was getting a bit hung up on that. And I was thinking, actually, I could just make my own up. Because, you know, one of the big rules is that vampire females are not supposed to be able to give birth. So oh, I didn't know that. Yes. No, no, yeah. you see, how much you know about vampires. <laughs> <laughs> so we slightly, uh, well, that will come out more in the trilogy, but um, slightly broken that rule. <laughs> and would you like to be a vampire? Oh, it's such a difficult question. No. <laughs> I don't, I'd like, you know... I, I Immortality? Don't, no, flying. I don't think... I don't, well, I'd love to do the flying. Yeah, flying And I'd yeah. love, I love the fact that they're so sort of confident and so removed from you know all the sort of humdrum and all the sort of cares of this world there sort of seems to be slightly above all that so I'd love all that aspect of it and I'd love to be yeah you'd love to be the, the invincible side of it but yeah and the immortality no <laughs> and how do you deal with the fact as I say it, it's been on film so often that it's, it might be used to step into cliche because we all know you know how, how do you avoid that well I, it's, I think it's really hard and I think you just have to that's one thing though that once you start writing sometimes it just goes in directions that you're not expecting and I think you just have to follow your characters and their journey people still still seem to love vampire mm. stories there's you know I think in, interview of vampires being remade or it's being remade there's vampire academies out I mean 
<laughs> Great research. We I mean, can't get yeah, enough of them. No, yeah. Fantastic research. Yeah. I think it's the fact that they're so human. They've got these human characteristics and yet they are supernatural, so, so to speak. And Vamps Fresh Blood by Nicole Laurent is published by Simon & Schuster. We're speaking on Bookmark today to Andrew Stickland about his novel, The Arcadian Incident. Andrew, the point that Nicole was making there about finding your own place in a crowded market, that resonated with you? It did. I, I think there's an awful lot of genre writing, whether that's science fiction or horror or fantasy crime. There's a huge demand for it. And I think it's really hard to know whether or not to try and find your own little niche and have a, a an original story or whether to give people what you know they want. And I don't mean just as a writer, I mean as a publisher as well. I think Nicole described her, her novel as Top Gun for Vampires. And, you know, why why do you do this? I think it has to be because you're looking for that audience. You're looking for a, a place to establish yourself. And with, with anything, most of the stories have been told at this point. The only thing you can do is either go into some bizarre place where, where your plot is so strange that people may not understand it, or you go for what you know people enjoy. You know, if they if they like Top Gun for vampires, if they like Harry Potter for vampires, then you give them what you know they want, because there's a market for it. And in your book, you've got a young hero and a, and a heroine, Leo and Skater, who were, as you say, very, very different, very different experiences of parenting and a very different upbringing. Where did they come from? When I started the novel, it was all, it was Leo's story. This goes back to why I started writing in the first place, which was talking to my son James. I thought I would write him a, a novel. So it, it made sense to to have the main character, a boy. Now, I think James at the time, he, he wasn't 15. He must have been about 12 or so. And I made Leo a much younger character to start with. I think he was about 13. And so the where he comes from is is basically my own experience, not not just personally, but there's bits of me in there. Uh, there's there's bits of my brother. There's bits of friends from school, and and it it was easy in in that sense to create a a male character, because I knew what I was writing about. I realised that he wasn't enough on his own. Very very quickly, I needed another character that he would interact with, and mostly I think just because. It made sense in terms of trying to get as many readers as possible. I thought, well, I've, I've already got a, a boy. Let's have a girl as well. So creating a young female character was a lot harder. I don't have any sisters. I don't have any daughters. And so in a sense, I, I had to make up the character in a way that I didn't have to with Leo. How I did that, I don't know. There's still a lot of me in there, in a sense, because a lot of the experiences that Skater goes through are not because she's a girl, just because she's a young person. So if she's stuck in a situation that's very exciting or dramatic, it doesn't matter that I don't know what it would be like to be a girl in that situation. I know what it would be like to be a young person in that situation. So that's fine. I just, I wrote her as a young person. But, you know, I, I, I have friends who have daughters and my kids have friends who are girls so little by little I could I could 
pick out little bits and pieces from from people that I did know just to make sure that I was writing about a girl rather than just a boy with a girl's name. And you mentioned James there, who you wrote it for, and your second choice of music, I'm assuming this is the same James, is by James Stickland, a piece called Apparel. It is. I, I, as I say, I wrote the book because I'd promised to write James a book. The book is actually dedicated to him for that reason. And yes, shamelessly, I'm going to plug the fact that he is now grown up and making his own music. And I thought, this is the closest I could I could get to having a piece of music that had some link to the book. So yes, I chose one of his. Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Our And we're talking on Bookmark today to Andrew Stickland about his novel, The Arcadian Incident. Andrew, you say, you know, it's a world that's only 300 years ahead of ours. There are still lots of things we recognise. Yes, that's true. And you've got cities on the moon and Mars, but they've got the same problems that cities have nowadays, which I thought was very clever, that you still have no-go areas and bits that are derelict and all the issues that we have today with urban areas. It doesn't make any difference that they're on the moon. These, these issues have arisen over time. When you're writing a novel, you worry about the plot and your characters. This is what's important. You're trying to give your readers something exciting to read. Beyond that, you then look at the setting for it. And like I, I said, I love science fiction. It struck me as the obvious thing to do, to go beyond Earth. But I think as... as the human race will have the same issues just because we leave Earth, because we set up colonies on the moon or on Mars. We're going to be the same people with the same issues. And there will always be recessions. There will always be violence. There will always be some guy who just wants to rule the place rather than just be successful. And so, yeah, it's, it is the world we live in. It's just a much, much bigger world because it uh, it's now become a solar system, not just a planet. Yeah, and the same values are still important. Love is still important. Family is still important. Yeah, and, and actually family is, is really what's at the core of this, this novel. We, we have Leo. Leo is going to work with his, his mother. He discovers that his mother has been kidnapped. He doesn't have a father. The only family he has is his mother, and she's been taken away from him. So... At the, at the beginning, he's completely on his own. Fortunately, having met Skater on the shuttle, he now has a slightly bigger family because Skater has met up with her dad and the two of them, Skater and, and Pete, her father, are, are there to help Leo. They, they become an extension of his own family and he's basically welcomed into their family. And I won't tell you how, how it ends up, but... Uh, you know, all, all the way through through this novel and through the trilogy, these these close family relationships are really important. Some of them are biological, some of them are friendship relationships. But you know, Leo and Skater are so close to brother and sister in in many ways, because they have this this bond that they've been brought together through this crisis of looking for Leo's mum. 
this is what's important to them. I suppose one of the things that we will also recognise is the importance of data, artificial intelligence and, and IT, and that if you are an expert in that field, which Leo's mum is and actually Leo is as well, you have a lot of power. Yeah, this was one of the hardest things, trying to imagine what life would be like in 300 years' time. I, I used the example earlier of, of the mobile phone. Maybe there are people who, who have a pretty good idea of where we'll be in 300 years in terms of the use of technology, the use of AI. While I was writing the novels, I was spending a lot of time mostly for research, but but also just out of interest. I, I, I spent a lot of time on NASA's website. Whenever I came came up with a, an issue that I needed to find out more about, I, I would just spend a lot of time looking on, on Wikipedia, whatever. And, and I would go off on a tangent. And, and I, I became fascinated by things like AI and where that's going to go. I, I should say, I, I wrote the novel, or the first draft of it, about 10 years ago. So it's it's been around for a little while. And even in that 10 years from first starting writing to getting it published, so much changed in the world in terms of things like how we use technology, how, how we are already starting to adopt AI. A- AI no longer means basically the thing that Asimov talked about in, in iRobot, this, this idea of of a programmable intelligence that that develops on its own. AI now is things like a little box that you have in your living room that you can talk to 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 play music for you. It monitors your house and works out whether or not you need the radiators on. You know, all these little things, this is part of the, the move towards AI. Even this morning I was reading something about uh, Microsoft are working on an, an AI. At the moment, in 300 years this level of technology will be so much more sophisticated that I have no idea where we will be. So either when you're writing science fiction, either you you just run with it and you run the risk of becoming really over-technical or you just say, you know what, it's an adventure story. Yes, it's set in the future. Yes, we will have things like AI, but I'm just going to, I'm going to adapt technology to suit my story rather than become a slave to what I actually think will be the situation in 300 years time. Thank you Andrew. Well uh, we'll come back to you in just a moment but let's hear now from another debut novelist L.N. Hunter. His debut novel The Feather and the Lamp came out last year and when I met him I asked him what the novel's about. It's a light-hearted fantasy, a comedy about a young adventurer who meets an awful lot of strange people, including quantum dragons, underground monks, visits the underworld, gets sacrificed, gets blown up, wants to make her way home, and you'll have to read the book to find out if she makes it. Sounds a lot of fun. What, what kind of genre is this? It's definitely comic fantasy, I think heavily inspired by, by people like Terry Pratchett. Your hero is a heroine, so yes. a, a young girl is yes. that right at the centre. Why did you make her a young girl? You're writing as a man. Why go for a young girl as your heroine? Partly because when my daughter was growing up, it was very difficult to find interesting, fun books where the protagonist was female. Things have changed a bit nowadays, but uh, back then they were few and far between. So I thought I'll add one. And you, you say you're inspired by Terry Pratchett. Is, what is it about this genre that you like? I like the ridiculous of the situations, the humour of the characters and what they get up to and their kind of real world reactions to the bizarre things that are going on. 
there are definitely some characters in Terry Pratchett that really stand out. Like my, I think my favourite are the three witches. They just bring an awful lot of common sense to a ridiculous world. And I've tried to do a little bit of that in this book. And this sounds like there's almost like a fairy tale element in this book. Well, it's got dragons, it's got a genie. doesn't actually have any fairies as such, but uh, it's definitely a bizarre fantasy world. And when you're forming this fantasy world, when you're world building, where do you start? Because it has to have its own rules, doesn't it? It might be very different to ours, but within it, it has to have certain rules. Yes, there is consistency. The rules are quite arbitrary, but I did put a lot of effort into making them consistent. I don't think I really started with a view of what that set of rules would be. The book more or less started as a bunch of episodes or scenes or characters or objects that I want to build a story around. And then the rules of the world grew to fit those ideas. The reviews have spoken about the comedy in it. It's funny. So it's important to you that that it is funny, that it gets laughs. Yes, definitely. I want to write a book that I would like reading. And I like that weird humour that I hope I've put into it. And this is book one. Yes. Will there be more? There certainly will be. Book two, I've got a vague outline and a few scenes written. And I really need to get back to working on that again. Book three at the moment is a sentence. <laughs> so it'll be a trilogy? At least. I'll keep it going as long as I can keep the jokes going and as long as readers find it funny. And do you know what's going to happen? I know what's going to happen in book two. I've got a very vague notion of what might happen in book three after that. I have no idea. Who's the reader for this? What kind of person would this book appeal to? I think that the humour is quite British. So I think it will appeal to people who like, say, Monty Python or Douglas Adams or Terry Pratchett, of course, those sorts of things. It'll be interesting to see how well it appeals in, say, America, where the sense of humour is quite different. And in terms of your writing it, do you have a routine for writing? Is this your main job? It is my main job now. I, I gave up full-time employment to become a writer I write a lot of short stories. They're easier to experiment with than novels. My routine, I don't really have a routine. I tend to write when I get inspired by something, which may be a short story or maybe another scene for this series. I ought to be more disciplined, but but I'm not. Giving up your job to become a writer, wow, that's a big big step. It kind of coincided with the start of the the pandemic. I'd been thinking about changing the way I worked somehow, maybe dropping down to fewer than five days a week. But then lockdown happened, and I did some sums to work out whether I could survive on what I'd got so far or not. And fingers crossed, I think I can cope with being a writer for a few years. <laughs> well, good luck with it all. It's, it's been getting good reviews from readers. You must be pleased about that. Uh, yes, yes, good reviews always help. And The Feather and the Lamp by Alan Hunter is published by Three Ravens. We've been talking on Bookmark today to Andrew Stickland about his novel The Arcadian Incident, book one in the Mars Alone trilogy, which is published by Lightning Books. Andrew, presumably this is book one. You've got two more coming out. Uh, Are they written already? They are. The second one, which is called Escape to Midas, became listed on Amazon just the other day for pre-orders. I have to say I was going to Amazon to look and... and <laughs> That's news to you. <laughs> look, look, look at my reviews. And yes, on, on my author page, the, the next one is up. Now, I, I have sent the manuscript off to the, the publishers for that one. That's all finished. I have a little bit more work to do on the third one, which will be called The War Between Worlds. Beyond that, I would love to keep writing novels like this in this world and this series. 
maybe not indefinitely, but I, I certainly, even at the moment, have plans to go up to about number 12. Now, whether my publisher is, is happy to keep publishing them, I don't know. We'll get the first three out of the way and then see how things are going. But I, I love writing them. I love the characters. And the more I write, the more I want to write and keep writing about them and tell their story. Particularly Skater, actually. Skater has become my main character now. And I, I have planned out her entire life. So if my publisher will, will keep letting me write them, then I will keep doing it. And a question that we ask all our guests on Bookmark. What are you reading at the moment? <laughs> I always like to have quite a few books on the go. I don't know why. It's possibly just laziness, but I have different books in different rooms in the house. And wherever I am, I'll just pick up the book that's closest. So at the moment, the one that I'm, I'm mostly reading is Liberation Day by George Saunders. It's his newest collection of short stories. And I tend to read one story and then we'll leave the book for a while so I can think about the story. I don't want to just read the whole thing from cover to cover because I think each story deserves a, a bit of time. I'm doing the same with a collection of plays by Jez Butterworth. I, I have, I think, plays one and plays two. There's about eight or nine plays in total. And again, I will, I will read a play over a, a couple of days and stop and think about it. Beyond those two, I've just finished a fantastic book called Sugar Money by Jane Harris, which is historical fiction. And I've just started O William by Elizabeth Strout, which which is my book group book, yeah, which is why I'm reading to keep it. Keep you occupied then. Yeah, I love reading and I love having. It's such a strange moment when you finish a novel and you haven't started another one that I like this idea that I'm never there. Once If I finish one, there's always two or three that are, I'm still going with at the moment. Well, we'll come back to you for your last choice of music in just a moment, but a heads up that our next show, our featured guest is Sophie Harrison, talking about her book, The Cure for Good Intentions, A Doctor's Story. We'll also hear from Jessie Keane on her novel, Never Go Back, and Phil Johnson will be talking about his crime novel, Run to the Blue, but we'll sign out now, Andrew, with your last choice of music, which is Rodrigo y Gabriela and Hanuman. Why this one? I love it. It's instrumental. So it's one of those ones that I can listen to while I'm writing. I was introduced to them by James. So there's an, another link to, to the novel, I suppose. It's amazing. James plays the guitar, amongst other things. So I, I, I know what it's like to play the guitar. But Rodrigo y Gabriela... It's, it's amazing what they can do with just two guitars. There's tambora in there, which is the, the tapping of the actual thing to create percussion. One plays the melody, one plays the rhythm. What comes out at the end is just so amazing. This is one of my, again, one of my go-to tracks that I listen to quite a lot. 